Well, good morning, church family. There we go. Hey, if we've never met, my name is Jeff Manning. I am the Minister of Spiritual Formation here in Longview, and uh, I'm glad you're here, and I'm eager to share God's Word with you today. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, so if you have your copy of the Bible, I would invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 24. Philippians chapter 2, 19 through 24, we're continuing our series in Philippians called Together We. And as we've gone through really chapter two, we've discovered uh, the ways in which we are the church together. So the church in Philippi has been facing some, some outward persecution and they've been experiencing some inward division. And Paul has instructed them that based on the perfect person and the perfect example of Jesus, he tells them that they should stand and submit to, together in Christ. They should be unified and they should be under the lordship of Jesus. And if you've had your coffee this morning, maybe you realize that we've skipped a few verses ahead in Philippians, and that's okay uh, because we're going to come back to verses 12 through 18 next week. Uh, Paul is going to tell the church today. Not only should they stand together, and not only should they submit together, but they should also serve together. And he's going to tell us to look to Timothy as a worthy example. Now, before you get uh, too ahead of yourself and convince in your mind and do some word association about what it means to serve, you need to understand what Paul means by serve is not necessarily Sunday morning Wednesday evening volunteering. There is that. And it's not less than that. But what he's talking about when he talks about serving is far more than that. It's deeper than that. And maybe one of the reasons we have a hard time seeing the distinction between the two is because we may not have very many examples otherwise. We can think of people in our lives who serve on Sunday in one of our various teams and ministries but maybe it, perhaps it's more difficult to imagine someone who had lived a life of service, who is a joyful and godly servant in whatever sphere that God has given to them. Maybe we have a hard time thinking of examples. But here's what Paul knows. Paul knows that we need flesh and blood, real life, real time examples like Timothy if we're going to serve one another faithfully. See, Paul followed the example of Jesus, and Timothy followed Paul's example. And if we just track on and down through history, what we find is that any disciple of Christ has always had a real-life person to emulate, to model, to imitate, to follow. And so here we are in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 24. And if you're there, would you say that the Bible is true? Praise the Lord. Here's what the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has to say to, to the church in Philippi and to us today. Verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served me 
in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that surely I myself will come also. This is the word of the Lord that he has for us today. Would you pray with me as we get going here? Father, we're so thankful for your word. God, that you provide for us through your word and through your church. God, would you help us this morning to hear your word and to love your church as you have. Spirit of God, would you help us to understand your word that we may love and serve one another ever more faithfully and true. God, we need your help to do that. And so we ask that you would be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, we are going to listen to Paul. We are going to look to the example and the character of Timothy. We're going to see that he's worthy. He's worthy of, as an example of service to the church. And so I want us to follow along well, since we're skipping ahead and since we've been tracking along, I want us to be able to read well. And so uh, if we go back to Philippians 1 through 2, it'll help us to understand Paul's argument. So far, there's been a lot of really rich theological content about Jesus, who is both God and man. It's this great mystery of the incarnation, this dual nature of Jesus. He is the super exalted one over all things. This is what we learned last week. But now Paul is going to make this shift from Christology to community. That's going to be the shift for us. And maybe that seems less interesting, and maybe it seems like a little bit of an interruption in his thought, but it's actually a continuation it's a continuation of what he's been saying. And in Philippians 1, 27 through 30, Paul exhorts them to live a life manner worthy of the gospel. And they are to especially do this by standing firm in the faith side by side so that the, the, the people outside the church and really inside the church as well can witness the unity, that they belong to each other. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he tells them how they're going to achieve this. It is through humility with Christ being the ultimate example. And we see this in verses 5 through 11, that in Jesus' self-humiliation and his super exaltation, he becomes our example. And we'll discover this more next week, but in verses 12 through 18, Paul's going to say that the way that they work this part out in their lives is through fear and trembling. That if you're really going to be a servant to one another, if you're really going to be unified together, you're going to have to work it out. You're going to have to participate in the life in Christ with fear and trembling. And this leads us to our text today. We're going to see a real life example of a humble, selfless servant. It's going to be Paul's disciple, Timothy. And this should remind us about letters in the New Testament. If you don't know this, anytime a letter is written in the New Testament, it's an occasional letter. And here's what this means. It means that there are particular people under particular circumstances, people who have been written to, to, to address a specific need. Because the Bible is not, it's not a set of disembodied principles that we just refer to like an owner's manual when something goes wrong. And I think this is oftentimes the, our experience of the scriptures. Is that we just treat it like a set of disembodied principles and we're just kind of left to figure out how it all fits together. But these letters, are, they're about a real God and a real people 
And this includes the things that are both messy and the things that are mundane and the things that are just ordinary. And here's the good news about that. That means it's for you and me. That if it's messy and mundane and ordinary, which is often just our everyday life, that means these letters are for us too. So we get a little crazy with our biblical acronyms. If you've been with us uh, recently, uh, you've been introduced to a lot of uh, acronyms. You've been introduced to the HEAR method, H-E-A-R, right, for interpreting the Bible. You've been introduced to ACTS, A-C-T-S, for prayer. Uh, If you've been here on Wednesday nights, you've been introduced to MAPS, M-A-P-S. We get a little crazy with our acronyms. And uh, as a friend of mine reminded me of recently, he reminded me of the B-I-B-L-E acronym. You guys know which one I'm talking about? You laugh because you have a song stuck in your head now. You're welcome. It's like taking you, it's like a time warp going back to VBS circa 1980. But that's not the song, there's there's an acronym. And this acronym stands for Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. Think about that for a moment. So it gives not our head and we we understand what that means and maybe that's what we've used to describe the Bible. Try to simplify it for someone. But think about that for a minute. It's a good faith effort, I assume, to try and simplify something. But here's what I think actually happens. I think it actually cheapens what the Bible is, and I think it cheapens what people are for. If it's just instructions before leaving, there's really not an ultimate message being communicated, and it really doesn't have to involve anybody. And I don't, I don't want to harp too much on the acronym. It's not its fault that we have the acronym. Um, There's this idea in place long before it was written, but there ha- I think there's been a cheapening of Christianity. I think it's been a cheapening of the grace of God. If you're familiar, if familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote a book called Discipleship. And here's the opening line of that book. By the way, Bonhoeffer was a pastor during World War II. He came to America. He experienced the church in Harlem, and he was so fascinated by the hope that they had, he felt convicted that if they have this kind of hope in the midst of all the kind of despair that they had throughout their history, then he needs to go back and participate in the sufferings of the church in Germany. It's this Bonhoeffer. He himself is an example of this, but listen to the opening line that he has in this book. He says, cheap grace is the mortal enemy of our church. Our struggle today is for costly grace. Cheap grace. It's the mortal enemy. It'll kill you if you're not paying attention. The question for us today, as it was for then, is this our enemy as well? Are we living according to cheap grace rather than costly grace? See, what the church, our church, Needs more than anything today are exemplars, supreme examples of those who take the call and the cost both seriously but joyfully. In our text today, we're going to see three characteristics from Timothy's life of what a servant of God must be, even in the smallest of tasks. He's going to be a supreme example to us, and we're going to look at these briefly. And I have to say that. I have to say that we're going to look at it briefly. It's more for my sake than it is for your sake. I have to keep myself concise. So we're going to look at each one of them briefly. And the first one that we need to see 
is that a servant of God should be like-minded. That a servant of God should be like-minded. Verse 19, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Verse 20, for I have no one like him. And then 22, he says, how as a son with a father, he has served me, served with me in the gospel. See, first we need to know where Paul's hope is grounded. Paul's hope is not in his release from prison. That's not where his hope is at. And while he's eager to send his friends to help, he, the hope for the church, for Paul, is not in the sending of Timothy. And as we're going to see here in a couple of weeks, it's not through Epaphroditus either. It's not in prison. It's not in these friendships. His hope is in the Lord Jesus. This is why this is important, because everything that Paul thinks and says and does is by the grace of God and for the glory of Christ. Paul was the greatest example of this. But this is why he sends Timothy, so that they too may be encouraged by how they are doing and becoming these kinds of humble servants. Paul wants this for them, and so he sends his protege, Timothy, to make sure that he can carry that out. He's trustworthy. He's like-minded with Paul. He has complete trust in him. His hope for them, the church in Philippi, to become faithful servants is ultimately in the Lord Jesus. He has the hope in the Lord Jesus. His ultimate confidence is in him because if Jesus is who he says he is, he will accomplish what he wants to in his church. Here's a second thing that we need to notice. We need to notice the significance of Timothy in verse 20. What is it about Timothy? Paul says, for I have no one like him. And this, this phrase can be translated as, I have no one with like soul. Timothy is like me in my very soul. He's a kindred spirit with Paul. Someone who's completely like-minded with Paul. And I think there's two reasons that we can account for this, why this would be true. The first of which is he's like-minded because they already share the mind of Christ. This is what we learn in Philippians 2.5. That for anyone who is in Christ, you have the mind of Christ. We might need to grow in it. We might need to excel in it, but we have possession of it. And so in, in 2 Timothy 2, what we learn is that Timothy learned these things from his mother and his grandmother. What a great testament to the women in our life, mothers and grandmothers. They taught him the sacred writings. So early on, Timothy had this, and this is one of the reasons we can count, but there's a second reason. So Paul comes to Lystra on his first missionary journey, and when he leaves, by the time he gets back, Timothy has come to the faith. And when, he, when Paul comes back that second time around, Timothy joins Paul's ministry. And if we were just to account the life of Paul and Timothy from that point on, of all the texts that mention them together, we would have about 20 years of ministry together between Paul and Timothy. It's estimated for Paul's missionary journeys, if you were to add up all the miles that he traveled, it's about 10,000 miles on foot. It's about equivalent from walking from Los Angeles to New York, there and back four times. 10,000 miles. And that's not just, I say walking in on foot, but he also traveled by sea as well. 
And so when Timothy joins him for that second journey, just to kind of give you a picture, like what kind of time did they have together? They were together for about six to nine months, and it accounts for about 3,000 of those miles of the total 10. And it doesn't account for all the other moments that, that Timothy was a part of his ministry and helping out otherwise. And here's what we need to understand. Timothy had significant time with Paul. He had every opportunity to observe the way he thinks and the way that he acts and the things that he says and to do what he does and to learn from him. And is this not the picture of what discipleship should look like? Isn't this what the discipleship to look like? That it, it takes a lot of time and an accumulation of moments to truly be a kindred spirit with one another. And think about how often we really participate in Christianity. Is it an hour a week? Is it just a service once a week? Is this enough for us to have real unity together? Is it enough to become like-minded, to be able to anticipate one another's needs, to be able to think ahead and give proper attention to real needs within the body of Christ? Is it enough? Because Timothy is an example that we spend significant time with those who have disciples. us. I've been in ministry for now, in some form or fashion, for about 18 years, and I've never learned more than when I was with a disciple maker or a mentor. And it wasn't just when they were on the job, it was when they were on the go. It was in car rides to do just errands across town, or if it was impromptu trips. I can think of um, one example. Uh, my pastor growing up, he always had this, this group of, uh, of seniors on call just to randomly take these trips with them to either hear him preach or to do ministry. And I remember one time he called me to go to South Mississippi during uh, Hurricane Katrina because there was a nursing home that needed some help and uh, they, they couldn't get out. And so they were literally physically having to be lifted out of this building and moved to a transport. And I remember he just called me up to go with him. He had the person he wanted to disciple in his mind. He was thinking about that person. And it wasn't just the experience of doing that together and serving together. I get to observe his life along the way and to have conversations with him. It's this old phrase of these things are more caught than taught, right? We become like-minded through long-term investment, one moment at a time. Think about your first day on a job. Think about the first time you walked into that, that, that first part of your job. You didn't know what to do, right? You didn't know where to go. You didn't know where the water cooler was. You didn't know who makes the coffee. You don't know where the paper room is. You don't know what to do. You don't know what to do with your hands. Kind of walking around awkwardly around the office like, what's this guy doing? Right, the first day, is, it's a difficult experience. But what happens a year in? What happens two years in? Three years in? You're no longer that person. As a matter of fact, it's probably hard to remember what day one was like. Given enough time and experience, we, we learn. On day one, you didn't know where to go, who to talk to, and now you can't remember what that day was like. And if we were to become a church that serves one another well, we also can't forget what day one is like for people coming to the faith. We have to remember what they need. We have to remember the needs of the body and be ready to meet those needs. We need faithful examples to follow. 
that we must learn to think and speak and do to the glory of God, just like Paul, that he couldn't imagine not doing something for the sake of Christ and for the benefit of others. My question for you this morning is, who is doing that for you? Is there someone that comes to mind who has served you in this way? I think we should be able to name names. And would anybody say your name? Would anybody recognize you as someone who's been a faithful servant, a joyful, fruitful, godly servant to them? Like Paul says in his letter to Titus, we need more spiritual fathers and we need more spiritual mothers. I love that imagery, that we need spiritual fathers and, and mothers, that this is, this is absolutely critical to the mission, that we need people who are not just available, we need people who are reliable. Being available is good, being reliable is better. And you learn reliability as you make yourself available. We must birth new Christians and then not leave them as orphans in the faith. If you've been with our church for a bit of time now, you've known that a lot of people have trusted in Christ recently. And I wonder if there's enough people, enough Christians, enough mature disciples to meet that need of new believer, someone who needs help walking. And if you're a parent here this morning, here's what I would ask you to consider, is to consider Timothy's mother and their grandmother as your example that by the time that Paul met Timothy and they launched out on this journey across the world, Timothy already knew God. The task of discipleship is not to find somebody else who can disciple this person. We don't bring people to church, ask them just to go to the services and hope they find discipleship and go like, this person will do it. We are the ones who take on that responsibility. So as parents, it's our responsibility to raise up our, our children so that if they get attached to someone like this, it's just an ever-increasing discipleship. They can continue it on. See, in Timothy's life, we see what it means to be like-minded. He spent a lot of time with Paul, and he learned what it was like to be a servant of God. So, but not was he like-minded, we see a second characteristic that Timothy, he was a servant of God. As a servant of God is big-hearted. He's not just like-minded, he's big-hearted. Look at verse 20 again. He says, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. See, if we learn from the verses before that Timothy had the mind of Christ, we learn in these verses that Timothy also had the heart of Christ. What a great combo when those two things come together, both mind and heart, body and soul. After all that time with Paul, he didn't just learn some neat ministry techniques. It's often a failure in ministry training that we just, we teach technique, we don't disciple the heart. that we share how to do ministry, but our heart is not caught up to the need. Paul, the one who had the closest oversight of Timothy's life, he tells the Philippians that this is someone that you can trust. This is somebody who's gonna be 
concerned for you genuinely. He's gonna have your best interest in mind. He's going to be concerned for your soul. And there's the contrast. Because in verse 21 is a reference to all these other people that Paul has made mention of already. It's those who are envious, the rivalrous, they're selfishly ambitious, and they're conceited. So Paul says, he's not gonna be like these people. He's a supreme example of selflessness and humility. They only cared about themselves, but Timothy loved the people of God. That while they were conceited and full of themselves, Timothy was content and full of Christ. While they were ambitious for their own image, Timothy was ambitious for the image of Christ in them. And while they elevated themselves, Timothy took the descent of death. The descent of death. He went down to the depths. There's so much about Timothy's ministry that we don't even know. But we see him traveling here and there, meeting needs in obscurity. He was willing to go anywhere and to do anything as long as it related to to the people's good in Jesus Christ. And I think this is the distinctive feature of what it means to be a Christian servant. This is the distinctive feature of Christian service. We're not merely interested, hear me, we're not merely interested in meeting physical needs. We are genuinely interested in the spiritual well-being of others. And this means we go down to the depth. See, the cross is not just a sign of, the, of our execution. It's an instrument of our joyful participation. The, the cross is not something that we just leave behind as if it's the symbol for the sacrifice of Christ. It is the instrument by which we are transformed into the, into the likeness of Jesus Christ. The descent of death for others is the way of love. And the question for us this morning is, is this the kind of Christianity you signed up for? Is this what was communicated to you when you came into the faith? Is it this, it's gonna have this kind of demand on your life? And this is why Timothy is an example to us. And I wonder, do you know anyone like him? Is our congregation saturated with Timothy's? Is our congregation saturated with Timothy's mother and his grandmother, those who are faithful servants? Do we have enough people for the needs? During one of my jobs through college, I got to spend a lot of time with my boss's family. He had five kids, uh, ages four to 18, okay? Four to 18, that is, that is a difference. And... Uh, when you're around like that, you see a range of parenting. You have to parent them differently, right? Four and 18. And something that always stuck with me is that they had mottos for their kids. You would um, hear them remind them of it regularly. So here's, here's the motto for the youngest kids. The youngest kids, the motto was, life's not fair. Anybody ever told that as a kid? Right? Life's not fair. Makes sense. For the younger kids, all they had to do was receive it. It may not have been so sweet, but it was short and simple. So that was their motto. And here's what the oldest kids, here's what their motto was. 
that we are happiest when we are pursuing someone else's happiness. That's more words and that's more substantial. That for the little kids, it's life's not fair. And for the older kids, it's you may have to give your life for someone else's happiness. When they would complain, and matter of fact, the more often they would complain, the more that they would repeat it. If they had something negative to say in the, fam- in the family, hey, remember, we are happiest when we are pursuing someone else's happiness. What's the difference between those two mottos? It's that each one was based on the level of maturity required. Each one of those mottos was given based on the level of maturity required. So the first one is necessary to understand. Would you agree? Life's not fair. It's good to know that early on. But it doesn't require anything. You could tell a kid that, hey, life's not fair, and it makes really no demand. They just need to take that to heart. But what about the second one? The second one is often neglected, and it requires everything. You guys see the difference? The level of maturity required to do it. So what we learn about Timothy is that he is a mature follower of Christ. He has left the elementary principles of the faith, the ABCs of the faith, and he is now embodying wherever he goes, that he is most happy when he is pursuing someone else's happiness and good. How do you become big-hearted? How does that happen? It's connected to being like-minded. We can't be big-hearted without being like-minded. It requires paying attention. It requires full participation, giving your life away, that we become big-hearted servants when we realize that our souls expand when we serve. Paul Miller would say like this, that Christ's likeness, what she defines as the art of looking like Jesus, it doesn't flatten you, it makes you come alive as a person. Serving on behalf of Christ fills the soul. It expands the soul. This is why, if you ever, if you ever felt just more full in your soul when you've served somebody, when you've met a real need, has anybody ever had that experience before? To know that you genuinely met somebody's need was just satisfying to your soul. Is it possible today that in your walk with Christ, your service muscles are in atrophy? That your soul is literally shrinking because it's been a while since you've really given yourself in service to others? Sometimes we imagine service as being uh, like we, we're kind of guilted into it or shamed into it. I know I need to serve. I don't really want to, but I know it's, I have to. As if, you know, maybe if I serve, maybe I'll get something out of that. And I'm reminded of Romans 5, but it tells us the Holy Spirit. So you think about being justified, having salvation in Jesus. Romans 5 tells us that the Holy Spirit pours God's love into our hearts. And here's what this means. We don't serve to gain love, but God's love gives life to our service. We don't do these things to gain love. We already have love, and because we have that, we serve gladly on behalf of others. To be a servant of God is to be big-hearted. 
So we learn that Timothy is like-minded. We learn that he's big-hearted. And we learn from Timothy that all servants of God are tested. Look at verse 20 again. He says, I don't have anybody like him. He says in 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth. Timothy had the mind, he had the heart, and we truly know this because he was put to the test and he was found to be reliable. Good things are always tested. He was tested. Paul knew it, and the Philippians knew the character of Timothy. One of my favorite passages comes from Paul's second letter to this young pastor, Timothy. And I think it really brings together these, these characteristics that we find that Paul, of, of Timothy's like-mindedness and his big-heartedness. But here's what we need to understand, that just because we see that in, in Timothy's life doesn't mean he did those things fearlessly. We don't need to imagine Timothy as a, a perfect example any more than we look at Paul. There is no perfection in their service. They weren't fearless, but they were faithful. And they needed to be tested. And on, more, on more than one occasion, Paul had to remind him of who he was, and he, was, he needed to hold fast to what he had been taught. And here's the beauty of 2 Timothy 3. When the test came, Timothy passed. And we see that in 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1. And he says, but understand this, that in the last days, he's going to give off a list of all the things that Timothy is going to have to address in the church there. In these last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents. Did you catch that? Right there in the middle of all these terrible sins, disobedient to parents. Ungra Are there any kids in the room? Pay attention. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying his power. Avoid such people. Timothy was put to the test. And you need to understand, Timothy wasn't just put to the test because other people were like that. Paul's also warning him that, hey, you too, you too could also be tempted by these things to be a lover of yourself to be more taken up by greed than love. To have the ability to get an edge on somebody, to cut someone down, to elevate yourself. And so what he's saying to him is be aware of these things, not just for other people, but be aware of yourself. And here's one of my favorite parts about Timothy's example. Because Paul gives that list and then he follows it up with this. He goes, but you, however... You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and my sufferings. In every single way, Timothy was a profound example of faithfulness. He didn't just stop listening to Paul's teaching and just be content with just to be like-minded and to know what Paul knows. He carried it all the way through. It affected his conduct. It affected what he ultimately aimed for in his ministry. And here's the most important feature. He endured all the way to enduring the same sufferings and persecutions. That's discipleship. That what you're receiving today is teaching. But what's going to matter you leaving here is what about your conduct? 
you heard what was said, how is it gonna change the way that you live? How is it gonna change your heart? Is it going to affect your faith and your love and the way that you persevere? Are you gonna be willing to endure sufferings and persecutions now because of what you've heard? See, if patience is needed in the Christian life, then your patience will be tested. You know, that's the great thing about when you, when you pray for patience, you will give, you'll get the opportunity to exercise patience. Patience wouldn't exist if you didn't have the opportunity to be tested. Isn't that a strange thing? So you were that song, uh, brokenness, brokenness is what I long for. Really? Brokenness is what I need. We sing it here. Is that, a real, is that a real prayer? Do we really want patience? Do we really want to bear one another's burdens? Do we want to suffer together? Because if an unflinching joy is a mark of Christian service, you'll have the opportunity to practice joy. And if a big-hearted love is required, you'll, it will be formed in you. What else could love be if it's not tested? For call to have joy, is it real love if it can't be practiced when circumstances are not the ones that you chose? Would it be genuine love if we always got to choose what the circumstances were? Paul is saying Timothy followed his example and they followed Christ and Christ looked beyond all those circumstances and met us at our deepest need. Follow their examples because it's not gonna be the big things that take us out. It's gonna be the accumulation of small compromises. It's gonna be the accumulation of small things that ultimately is gonna be a disservice to us and the church. How are you being faithful in the small things? As we come to kind of a close of this time, I want, to, I want you to imagine something with me. Sometimes we imagine, uh, when we think about service in this way, we imagine that um, uh, it's, it's really dramatic. We imagine serving Christ in really dramatic terms because we think the ultimate example of service is martyrdom. We have to become a martyr for Christ and pay the ultimate price. We say things like, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. Here I am, send me, go out with a blaze of glory, take on the gates of hell with a water pistol, right? This is what we imagine if we're not paying attention. This is the kind of narrative that we have. And you've heard the illustration of the blank check, right? Has everybody heard that illustration before? That what it means to follow Christ is to write, to give, to give Christ the blank check and for him to write an, any number in the box, just give it to God, he'll put the number down and this is, this is the sign of surrender, and Lord, whatever it costs, I'm ready. Any number you want, put it right there. You guys familiar with this picture? Now imagine, in that scenario, imagine taking that blank check to Jesus. And you're ready. You're ready for him to put that ultimate number on there. You ready for the number? It's a million dollars in literal service fees. It's a million dollars. He said, here's my life, Lord. Here's everything. I'm giving it to you. And as you would expect, Jesus accepts. Jesus accepts your offer. He writes a million dollars on the check, but rather than receiving it as a payment of your devotion, he hands it back to you and says, I want you to go to the bank 
I don't want you to cash it out. And it needs to be in small bills and spare change. It's a little bit different picture that we have. We're all ready to say, I'm giving up everything. But when it comes to the actual terms of it, we're unwilling to cash it in. And he says, the way that you actually cash it in, it's, it's, it's going to look smaller than you think. Why? It's because we think that discipleship is as big as martyrdom, but it's actually as small as just the mundane. That every day, we have the opportunity in the smallest of ways to serve one another. Sometimes we, we look at Paul's example and we're like, I can't be Paul. I, I especially can't be Jesus. And Paul goes, yeah, but have you considered my, my friend Timothy? You could do that. That in the smallest of ways, he is a worthy example. He's an ordinary example. What about him? And what about someone here? Is there someone here today? Where, where are our examples, real life, flesh and blood people that we can look to? Did you realize this morning that you already had an opportunity to serve? Did you see it? Did you notice it on the way in? It wasn't the parking team. It wasn't the worship team. It wasn't the kids team. It wasn't any of the ministries. The opportunity that you had was right here when you walked in the room this morning and you began looking for a seat. Did you notice it? It was the opportunity to sit next to someone that you don't know. We all have our seats, right? Some of you all probably got nameplates on them. We have our regular schedule. We come in, zeroed in, focused on. But did you scan the room for the visitor? Did did you notice the person who was hurting? Did you notice the, the grieving person? Did you notice the person who slides in every week and just slides right back out? What about the person or the family who hasn't been here in a couple of weeks? Or the family who hasn't been here in a few months? And this has been, this has been over the last couple of years for us. What, what about the family? They have not been here completely disengaged. They haven't been here in a couple of years. Who was it that you saw? And maybe here's the question. Who did you not see? Did you notice? Did we come ready to see and to serve? And I got to tell you, there's still time for you to do that. So just because you missed the opportunity on the way in doesn't mean you have to miss the opportunity on the way out. There's people sitting next to you. They're on the row in front of you. They're on the row behind you. And maybe they can't, they can't wait until the service is over so they can slide back out. And if you're not diligent enough, they will do that. But what if? What if in the most mundane of conversations and opportunities, the Holy Spirit gets the opportunity for someone to experience healing. Do you realize there's, there's, there's married couples here today and they are hiding together and they don't want you to know how bad it is. They're just putting on the nice picture so you won't recognize what their true need is. 
But what if you know, and what if you were the couple to come alongside them, to serve them, to help them seek reconciliation? What if it was just simply coming here and praying with them today? And that was the first step over the next few months that you began to see them glorify God through their marriage. And you intervene, you cut them off at the pass, and you began to serve them. For others, is there a name that comes to mind? And maybe the opportunity for you today in your response is just to give thanks. To have a heart full of gratitude, to name that person, give thanks to God, and then if they're here, go tell them. Or to call them. What if we were known as a people who not only outdid one another in serving, but we outdid one another in showing honor? What kind of life could we have if we become, we moved away from the cynical and the despairing and the hopelessness and we put our trust in Christ and go, he is worth following. There is no, no greater joy than I would have in knowing him and serving his people. What a life change that would bring. And not just for our church. What if all churches did this and they served you wonder in this way? What if we outdid one another? And if you're hearing this, like, I don't know, I don't know what any of this is about, and you just want to talk to somebody, say, man, I, I, I need to be served. I need help, but I don't know how to ask. I don't know, really know what my ultimate need is. Maybe it's, maybe it's that you just need to, to trust in Christ. His people are this way because Jesus is this way. Do we look like him? If you're here today and you have those questions, I would invite you to come, be prayed for, talk to somebody, help, get help discerning what your next step is. Here in a moment, we are going to sing together. We're going to respond. I would invite you to do those things. So I want to pray for us and give us that opportunity. Spirit of God, we need your help right now. So would you help us to respond in, in the most appropriate way? God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your body. Help us to love one another and to serve one another in Jesus' name. Amen.